So the vision for Carpathian is to be a liability mitigation company using computer vision, going into industries that are high risk and being able to recognize that something could go wrong and prevent it. The other piece that I started asking was like, can we train the system to predict that something might go wrong based on behaviors? They asked me, what's the biggest risk that you've ever taken? Like I, I'm 99% sure I was going to get that job. To be honest, it's rather ironic because it's to not take this job and to go build a startup. He looked at me and told me, you're never going to have any better time than now to go do that. Like, frankly, I'm scared to make this step, but I've been preparing for this for a long time. And he's like, go do it. So <laughs> so the guy I, that was interviewing you for a job told you to not take the job or even yeah. stay in the interview and go chase your dreams. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. What's going on, guys? My name is Ryan Snod. It Rhymes With Odd, and you're listening and watching the Rhymes With Odd podcast. Today, we have another guest on the show. We're talking all things AI, marketing, the future of how technology is going to change with Sam Malkasian. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. Awesome. So today's show is going to be an interesting one in terms of the topics, but I think the fact that like how we've been connected is kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, so yeah. I, I want to say the first time we connected was online, right? Because you bought one of my videography programs, right? I did, yeah. And honestly, I don't remember how I heard about it. It might have been through the Iowa Film Group. I, okay. Yeah. But I was looking to get into videography, and I was like, oh, this course looks cool. Sure, sure. Yeah, and it's it's kind of crazy. You were in like four years ago, and it's like now there's like three other courses as addition to that. There's like more lessons and stuff, so I'm sure mm-hmm. it's, it's changed mm-hmm. quite a bit. But it, you have an interesting career path because you're not in videography anymore, and you're doing all these other crazy fun things, so we'll talk about that today. But for the people that don't know – who you are. Can you just give a brief introduction of like who you are and what you do? Yeah. Um, so my name is Sam Malkasian. I am, um, had been working in the videography, um, content creation space, did that or have done that for close to nine years. Um, I'd say about now it's a lot of it is transitioning into the, the cyber, um, tech AI sp- uh, space. Absolutely. Because what, what was the name of your company that you have now? Uh, Carpathian. Okay. And we'll, we'll talk about that too. Yeah. I, I yep. keep messing up the, the <laughs> pronunciations of everything. So I'm like, I'll That's have okay. you say it. That's good. <laughs> um, but no, I think, I think it'd be helpful to kind of get a little backstory about where you kind of, where your career path started, where you're from originally and kind of get a better understanding of who you are. Yeah. So I'm originally from Seattle, uh, moved here in 2014 to go to the Bible college in Ankeny. So I, that's the thing I always preface this story with is all my formal educations and religious studies completely unrelated to what I did professionally and now what I do professionally. Um, So yeah, I got my undergrad in theology, was studying to be a preacher, and right out of college started doing marketing for Grinnell Mutual Reinsurance. Um, I did that for, oh, almost three, four years thereabouts. Um, At the same time, running a marketing business on the side, um, Des Moines Marketing Studio, and yeah, I think it's interesting when it, you know, a lot of people, I've always been creative. I've been shooting videos since I was a kid and just always assumed that, well, because I do production stuff or I'm creative, I must belong in the marketing field. And so I was kind of accidentally stumbled into it. Um, I've always had this interest or desire to work in tech. I think as a kid, I was like, oh, I'm going to be the CEO of Apple someday. Like that, that was my, my career path I wanted to take. And so the more time I spent in marketing, though, I kind of forged that path. And I kind of hit a breaking point multiple times in it 
where I had to ask myself, do I truly enjoy doing this? So like, I loved doing video. That's why I got the video course. Um, but I can think there were two notable scenario or two uh, situations that made me evaluate. And this will kind of de-glamorize de what it means to work for yourself and working in the marketing space. Because a lot of people think, oh, you know, it's, anyone can do marketing. As long as I have a camera, great. Well, I also thought the same thing. Um, and so there was a client that I got in way over my head. Like, <laughs> I don't even know how to begin to describe what happened with that situation. But um, there was a considerable amount of money involved. And frankly, I dropped the ball. Um, I just, I got so overwhelmed with work that I missed the deadline for editing. And um, when it was all said and done, I got informally deposed. And it was one of the most horrifying experiences I've ever been through in my life. I ended up settling with a client out of pocket. Um, I just told him like, you know, I, I guess let me step back and say I, at that point, I didn't have anything to lose. Like as a business, I didn't really have any assets. I mean, I was an LLC, so technically I was protected. But I realized at that point I would have to make the decision that as a business, I could try to fight it or I could take the high road because I believe that the decisions that we make as we go along are really the things that forge our character. And so for this, I was like, all right, I'm going to take the high road. I'm going to settle out of pocket, pulled money out of my savings, um, and paid them off. And that was effectively like the end of your video business, right? When you were at that point, because you're like, yeah. I'm so like, I just can't do this I, anymore. I, yeah. I didn't sleep for probably a solid three or four days. Like I was terrified. Um, and it was kind of in the midst of that, like that situation. And I was doing so much on the production side that I effectively burned out. And I sold all my camera equipment. I just I sold everything. I was like, I'm never doing creative stuff again. So I enlisted in the military with the intention of I knew I wanted to work for myself someday. I wanted. And, and what, what steered the choice to do the military at that point? Because you'd already been to school and now you're yeah, going in the military. Yeah. Well, I knew I wanted to continue my education. And so to either get another bachelor's or a master's or even just the technical certificates, I in, initially thought I was going to go into cybersecurity. Um, cause I mean, who doesn't want to be a hacker and, um, the healthcare benefits as well as, um, the retirement. So kind of, I mean, you're also part of the world's biggest gang. So it's like you, you have connections globally, um, kind of the mix of those things. I was like, all right, I'm going to make this decision. I enlisted. I was gone for about a year in training because, uh, my MOS is technical. I'm a radio operator. So it, it's probably close to a year worth of training. Um, came back, realized I really missed doing the creative work. Um, ended up purchasing a camera again, and this time decided that I was going to do creative work on my terms. So I do photography. I don't charge for it. It is just a hobby. I refuse to do any paid jobs, and I do it for coffee shops specifically. So there's a coffee shop in Des Moines that I do their product photos. Um, put together reels, their social media. And that really helps me protect it. And I think like as a creative, that's really important that you have to find those things that like you don't have to make money from every creative thing that you do because you will burn out. And I stopped doing anything creative for close to a year. Um, so <laughs> I protect my photography very carefully now. Coming back from the military, um, being gone uh, for that year, I started working another marketing job and I thought I was absolutely crushing it. Like that, the day that I 
pulled a report was probably the best I had ever seen. Like we were spending $1,500 a month on ad spend and generating $22,000 worth of revenue. So like to me, I was like, this is a huge win. Like we're doing really well. Sure. Well, I get called down to the office and they're like, we have to let you go. And I like talk about demoralizing. I mean, there's nothing I think that will really make you question your worth, especially when on paper, it looks like you're driving so many good results. And I think like, that's another big thing is to a lot of creatives, we put our heart and soul into the work that we do. And something like that really makes you question your value. And if like, am I even good at what I do? Like, why am I doing this? I think it was somewhat serendipitous that, um, I had been, I had been planning on eventually leaving my job and working for myself full time because at that point I was already in the process of going back to school, working on another bachelor's and a master's in machine learning and data science. When you're being laid off from that job, what was kind of going through your head as, as they're talking to you? Cause like you said, you were <clears throat> showing the results, you were showing, um, improvement or, Hey, you put this money in and more money comes out the other end. What mm-hmm. was kind of your thought process as they were letting you go and you're like, what am I going to do? Honestly, it was so sudden. I didn't even have time to process it. So I had been gone for about three weeks on military orders. I came back. They called me into the office and I knew something was wrong. Like red flags were going off. I go down there and they're like, we have to lay you off and you need to pack up your stuff and leave right now. So it was like, to me, it felt like I was getting fired. And I was so confused because they cleared everybody out of the office, took them all out to lunch for an offsite meeting and then by the time they came back, it's like everything was gone. They texted me and was like, what the heck happened? I mean, I was honestly in a daze. I was like, I've never been laid off or fired from a job. Like I crushed my results. Like I put everything into the work that I do. What is happening? So the questions that were going through my mind was like, I, I frankly didn't know what to think. And I, it was kind of that way for the next couple of weeks as I was just, tr- Yeah emotionally floundering because I didn't know what to do. Well, when you're kind of, when the desk was settling, did you look at other jobs or was that when you're like, you'd already been kind of kicking around doing something different already? Yeah. So we will talk a bit more about kind of the hobby side of things, but I coach rock climbing part-time. I've been doing that for almost two years now. Um, I, uh, yeah, I won't get ahead of myself. I'll get to that piece of the story. I did kind of look at getting other jobs, but at the same time, I've known I've wanted to work for myself for a long time. That's why I enlisted in the military. That's why I wanted to get the benefits. And I've been saving like crazy for the past few years, um, effectively paid off or virtually debt-free, save but like five grand in student loans. Um, just didn't pay those off because they were in forbearance. And so it's like, I was at a point where financially I had enough savings to last me almost a full year without a job um, and virtually no debt, no car payments or house payments or anything. So I realized like, okay, I'm not going to have, well, actually I was interviewing for a job and I was talking to the co-founder, um, or he might be the lead of sales, but they asked me, what's the biggest risk that you've ever taken? Like I I'm 99% sure I was going to get that job, but I told the, the guy that was interviewing me, to be honest, it's rather ironic because it's to not take this job and to go build a startup. They're also a later stage startup. I have done incredibly well. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and told me, you're never going to have any better time than now to go do that. And I was like, it's hard because like, frankly, I'm scared to make this step. But 
I've been preparing for this for a long time. And he's like, go do it. So, <laughs> so the guy I, that was interviewing you for a job told you to not take the job or even yeah. stay in the interview and go chase your dreams. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. I, I have so much respect for that company. I mean, and they are crushing it. Cause I mean, they also have very much the startup energy. Um, and I think it, it, it was, it was the kick that I needed. And I told him I'd get back to them at the end of the week about my decision. Um, and yeah, effectively withdrew my application. And that was, that was a scary step because being faced with being your own boss. There's a joke that, you know, um, entrepreneurs are the only people that will work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40 for someone else. And, and it's just, I mean, I knew it was going to be hard work. Um, but I have to say like being on this side of it, like we're still early stage. Um, we're still <laughs> testing market viability, but the people that I've met and the opportunities and just the conversations I've been able to have with people has been so rewarding. Like, I think that's one side that working a job, you just miss out on the privilege of networking with some amazing people, just especially in the Des Moines uh, ecosystem. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with that because especially at, like the person that gave you that advice is spot on because as you progress in your life, you talk to somebody that's 40 that wants to do what you're doing mm-hmm. and they've got multiple children, a mortgage, they're married, mm-hmm. they have a lot of like overhead expenses. Like it's mm-hmm. a bigger risk than when you're young. You can just like do it because yes, it's scary in the time, but you just risk it all and do it. Um, when you decided to go off on your own, <clears throat> took that guy's advice, what did you decide to start and what was the startup and what was kind of the thing you were trying to create that you're doing now? Yeah. At that point, I had no idea. Um, I knew I wanted to do something in the tech field. Well, I was sitting at home. I got an email and uh, like I said, so I coach rock climbing and there's a gym in Washington that had a person put on a harness wrong try to climb the wall, fall and hit the floor from 30 feet. That ended up being a landmark $6 million lawsuit for that gym. Did they like break their neck or something on impact? Number of broken bones was in the hospital. And there've been a couple of scenarios like that um, with a few different gyms around the country. And so obviously as those situations happen, that reflects on our gym and we have to implement new policies and like watch out for these things just to make our gym more safe. Because if something like that happened to us, we couldn't survive a lawsuit that big. Um, we're the only gym in all of Iowa. And I had just been in an AI meetup talking about computer vision and the the state of the world on that side of things. And it's like almost instantly like the vision hit me. And I was like, can we use computer vision to prevent stuff like this from happening? So I connected with a few other people, somehow convinced five others to work with us and to start building um, this startup got into the Drake business accelerator. And as we were testing our market, realized it was just too small. And I think that's the hard part as a founder where it's like, you've started building this baby. And I mean, the reality is there's only 515, 550 gyms across the entire US. Effectively, the most that we could generate if we got 100% market attrition is about 1.5 million. Realistically, even if we got 30%, that sets the max amount that we could make as a company at 360000 a year. Mm-hmm. When one software engineer costs you 150000 a year, it's just not a viable business model. And so we had to kind of step back. And granted, this was only week six of testing this market, so still very, very early. Um, and a lot of it was the advice that we were getting from the Drake Business Accelerator. 
we went back and started doing market research and really trying to find out what industry can we have the most impact. So the vision for Carpathian is to be a liability mitigation company using computer vision, going into industries that are high risk and being able to recognize that something could go wrong and prevent it. The other piece that I started asking was like, can we train the system to predict that something might go wrong based on behaviors? That way you can get completely ahead of it and prevent this stuff from even happening in the first place. Well, it turns out we could do that as well. So effectively, we started talking to people, talking to insurance and realizing like this is a huge issue. In 2022 alone, there was 143 billion paid out in workers' comp claims. So our goal as a company is to lower that because from a, how does it affect the rest of us? Well, when there's claims being paid out here, insurance company has to raise premiums here to balance it out. And so even though I may have never filed a claim in my life, my premiums are still going to go up because the insurance company is facing losses in these other areas. Right. And so kind of the, the goal is to make workplaces more safe, but also to help put more money into the pockets of people that need insurance and to prevent them from getting dropped if they have high risk industries that they're operating in. That's super interesting. Well, and I think it's cool that you you did the the front end work to see that the market share is too small because I've mm-hmm. done, I mean, I went to college for business and we part of our curriculum was to do the same process, like create a startup from scratch, launch it, scale it as fast as you could in a semester. It was like really short mm-hmm. timeline. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> to your point, if there's no market share, you're going to outgrow really quickly, but you yeah. could, you could specialize in rock climbing, <clears throat> but you could pivot to another industry or extend, you mm-hmm. know, start mm-hmm. in rock climbing, then switch to construction, then switch to roofing right. and switch to whatever else, whether other industries, because how long have you been working on Carpathian? Um, since mid to late July of this year of this year. So it's yeah. only like a six month project that you've kind of started. Yeah. What's, what does the name stand for? Is there some cool meaning behind it or is it like yeah. Apple where it just <laughs> it sounds like a, a name? So the idea with it was the car, it's named after the Carpathian mountain range to kind of I suppose tip our hat to the rock climbing. I, rock climbing is something that I do almost weekly. Um, I coach the kids climbing as well. And I think to me, like rock climbing is that sport where I can really get out and it's a break away from all of the work and the computers and the tech and just focus on being, you know, being present climbing the wall. Um, rock climbing is is so much more than just a physical exercise. It's a mental exercise. There's just so many pieces of it that is incredibly therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of regardless of where we go as a company, I still want to pay homage to that. I'm also from the West coast and I love the mountains. So I wanted to incorporate that somehow into the company. Um, I mean, you know, you know, you could extrapolate like, Oh, it's like the journey of climbing a mountain, building a startup, like whatever semantics you want to put into it. It was really more so just because we're rock climbing. Um, and, the funny thing is a lot of companies, when they brand themselves, they want their employees to wear their swag. And to me, I've never liked doing that because a lot of companies, I'm like, your logo kind of looks dumb. Mm. So the other thought was like, what if we design a logo that looks like a clothing brand that makes it look trendy and people want to wear it? Our current logo, I don't really think it encapsulates that sure. so much as like a clothing company, but I still wanted it to be something that was cool that people would be proud to wear so that they'd actually want to wear our swag. 
To sure. be honest, that was almost entirely the inspiration for it. Sure. So. Like maybe if this whole startup thing doesn't work, you can just start we'll a, clothing a clothing brand. Company, yeah. That's, that's yeah. a good uh, plan B for it. So, I mean, as this process starts, because I think most listeners probably don't understand, like, what, what does that process look like when you have an idea and you get plugged into these incubators mm-hmm. to get it off the ground? Because it's like you can't build the software completely, but you can't do this all by yourself. And then, you know, you have to bring in team members. Like, what does that process look like to kind of get an idea going and try to, to prove it in the, in the marketplace? Yeah. Oh, let me think how to answer that. You need people. Like 100%. I think fundamentally a lot of people, and myself included, I believe I can do everything better than everybody else. And I think within every single one of us, you can do, you can edit, you can shoot, you can produce this podcast better than I could. It's natural for every single one of us. But the reality is it's not about what you can do, but it's about the people that you can find to work alongside of you. And that was, I'd heard someone say that and I was like, wow, I've just done this fundamentally wrong for so long because I look at, okay, I need to teach myself this skill set. I mean, it's how I burned out. I was animating, I was doing photography, I was doing videography, graphic design, like literally the entire marketing stack. And I burned out. With this, I started finding people, you know, one guy was an incredibly talented software engineer. Like this guy, his ability to code really like beautiful code and programs is just, yeah, it's mind blowing. Um, connected with a guy in Malaysia that is a software engineer, um, has built some really impressive systems, met him on Reddit, and just pitched him the idea. So I'd say there's like a lot of different parts, and so I'll kind of lay the foundation. One, it's finding the right people. The other part is making the ask. Through an organization in Des Moines, the Greater Des Moines Partnership, I'm on the board with their young professional group. And I, in the process of searching reached out to the past president and was like, hey, I need to develop professionally. I just don't know what to do. So I met with him and another guy joined us. He then was like, hey, you need to meet this guy, Ryan, Ryan Dozer. We so just then, had, he just, his podcast yep, yep. just went live uh, yesterday yep. for, for people that are tuned in. So. Um, so I met with Ryan and then Ryan is like, you need to meet this guy, Manny. And so I get coffee with this guy, Manny, and... He's a commercial real estate investor that when he sells a piece of property, gets a half a million dollar check. And so as he's telling me about the things that he's done, the the economic development boards that he served on, and he's been the one handling entire municipality budgets, I'm like, wow, this guy's really important. Like, why is he talking to me? And initially I was going to talk to him about marketing because I thought, well, you know, I don't know what else to do. And this was still very early in our our startup as we were didn't even know what direction we were going to go. Manny looks at me and he says, Sam you need to ask for what you want. I'm like, I'm allowed to do that. And it was kind of from his connection, I started meeting all of these other, like just meeting C-suite people. And I'd be meeting with them and he bumps me and he's like, ask her for what you want. And she's like, yeah, make your ask. And I realized like so many of the people in this ecosystem, you just need to ask, hey, can I get coffee with you? And the power of name, name dropping is incredible. Like you meet one important person, you're gonna, it's gonna lead to meetings with so many other important people. So that's the other side is like having a lot of confidence will lead to more confidence and being able to meet with more people. So you're meeting with all these people and these connections are happening. At what point did you decide I need to bring on or start to build a team? And like what, how did that actual, how did the startup actually create itself? Yeah, that was the last piece. Um, That other side of it was finding the right people. So Seth Godin, sure. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, you know, marketing guru 
he has a different way of doing marketing. It's all about relevance. And I think it was him that one of the big things that he says, you find your fans. And I'm pretty sure it was actually him that said using I believe statements. That's one of the things that made Martin Luther draw a crowd is because, you know, he's like, I, I believe. And people that believed like him would congregate. And so I started experimenting with that. And, and I mean, that kind of comes down to the foundation of why this company, why us, and how are we going to do it? Well, one of my fundamental beliefs is that good people need to step up and control technology like this. And by control, I mean get public accountability on a massive scale because big corporations don't, and they sell that data. Like the reality is we are developing very evasive software. Like it's, it's learning your behaviors. It's watching you. So how do we protect ourselves or, or rather, how do we protect people? Mm-hmm. Well, good people have to step up and have public accountability because at the end of the day, I don't trust myself to make that decision when it's selling your data or me making a million dollars. And I think we have to be self-aware enough to realize that every single one of us in that position is going to go for the money. So when you have public accountability that big, it changes the way you do business. And I think as people heard that, they're like, I agree with that. Can I work with you on that? And the other piece was another big, I believe statement was, I don't think as companies, we should be waiting for regulatory bodies to tell us how we should and shouldn't handle people's data. That's on us. And how do you know how to do it? Public accountability on a massive scale. And I think there's like, there's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear around what AI is, what it does, you know, what is it doing with this data? I interviewed a lot of people um, in the climbing gyms and a lot of them hundred percent against the system. Like out of every single person I interviewed, all of them were against it. But when I, ask them questions of like, well, what if we delete the training data at the end of each month? There's a black box so no one can access it. If you have a gym here and you have another gym over here, those two systems don't talk to each other to prevent profiling and explain to them how the system would actually do what it does. You know, besides maybe like the one or two outliers, the vast majority of them, oh yeah, I would feel much more safe and I'd be very comfortable with a system like this. So it made me realize a lot of it is people want to be able to trust you if they don't see you as trustworthy they're not going to want to work with you, whether it's the end user or someone, you know, you're trying to find talent to work on your team. Um, and the other side is just, you have to be authentic and transparent, especially in a world where there's so much room for mistrust. You have to be upfront about what you believe and you're going to attract the right or the wrong types of people. And I think that's been a really cool thing is, you know, the kid that I connect with in Malaysia has built an incredible system where he can get live video footage without needing any cameras. Um, he built it for his master's project or, or his uh, college project. It was literally like, here, here's the source code. Here's what I built. You guys can use it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I, I told him our, about our vision, kind of my desires and ethics behind this company. And he's like, I love rock climbing. I love what you guys are doing. And we don't see a lot of that in the tech world. Can I work with you? And so it's been a lot of people just coming up to me and saying, like, we know we can't get paid to work on this, but we just love what you're doing. And we, we want someone to give us a chance and believe that we're worth the opportunity of working in this field. And so like, I need the help. So like, absolutely. Like, I'd love to have those people work with us. And I think that's the unique part about being an early stage startup. We don't have budget. Like I haven't made a single cent from this, mm-hmm. but people that believe in the vision, they're going to buy into that and into that mission. And at the end of the day, it, you're playing the long game. You're, you're realizing that this has potential and it's worth my time and investment and the right people are going to invest in that vision. Sure. No, I think it's an interesting process because like you said, you're 
you're trying to vet this idea out and get it out into the world in your mind. Um, how, how would it work for people that are trying to figure out like what, what, how would this work? It's basically a, a camera that watches a job site or a dangerous situation happening and it can predict when there's mm-hmm. high risk behavior happening and stop it somehow. Is that basically yeah, what, how yeah. that works? So we, we stopped development because we didn't want to go and find markets having already developed a product and kind of doing it back trying to find a product market fit after we've already put all this time and resources. So we stopped with, we were maybe about three weeks away from launching an MVP, stopped that and kind of went back to the drawing board. But the initial way that we were thinking of the way that it would work is using existing surveillance cameras, you can train it on technical behavior. And if it sees a deviation from that technical behavior, it triggers an action. In the case of a rock climbing gym, I am cli- I don't put a harness and I start climbing the wall. Well, it recognizes that deviation from, oh, you should be wearing a harness and being tied or clipped in. And it triggers an action, sends a notification to the staff on their device. Oh, I need to go check in on this. Mm-hmm. And I think that depending on the different <clears throat> industries we go into, that'll look different. Um, you know, that's a very oversimplified um, explanation of it, but that's really at its core, what it does. Sure. When I think, cause like I've, I've been shooting for uh, a construction company. So this could be another example where they have eye in the sky, uh, pole with a camera, like a 360 camera that has a live feed to all the executive members of the company, as well as, um, superintendents. So they can check in whenever, or like, what's the progress like on that, you know, building that's being built in Oklahoma and you're in Iowa. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, you just pop in there and check it. Yeah. So that's that. I think that would be an interesting thing too, where they get notified, like a, a construction job site, because there's a lot of people that are on scaffolding that could be mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. up to code, or people that are operating equipment without their safety harness on, or no hard hat, or whatever. Like I think that could be a good way, one for just documentation, but then like, um, like you said, um, anticipating mm-hmm. risk before it even comes to be a problem yeah. that could hurt somebody. Yeah. Well, I think you're going to see technology like this fundamentally change so many different job fields and it already is there are i'd say a decent amount of competitors already in this space building technology that does specifically like ppe you know making sure you have your high-vis vests your hard hats on Mm -hmm. your non-slip shoes Um, people aren't stepping out in front of forklifts inside of warehouses so there's already seeing application we're just in a unique place where it there's there's this almost space race for who can develop the most powerful piece of technology. And I think it's it's encouraging to see that a lot of the big ones are being open sourced to give more people access to just innovating and, and building cool things with it. I think a notable company in Des Moines is RoboFlow that we're, we're using their model or their system to train, but they ended up open sourcing it. And so you can build, like anybody can set up a free account with them and train a, a computer vision model and just use your phone webcam mm-hmm. or your phone as a webcam and make it recognize stuff. Um, and so anybody that, that does it on that capacity is all contributing to this massive open source library. Sure. Well, I, I could see two different ways with it too, with, with this model you're describing, if it's a job site, it could send an action or a notification to the person that's performing the violation that mm-hmm. could like ping them and say like, like a little reminder noise, like, Hey, put your harness on. To kind of like nip it in the bud almost. Right. I always think of it like a dog collar, like like kind of zap you, like, don't do that. Um, the other side could be notifying, you know, supervisors or managers, right. but then... Like a security officer or something. Yeah. And the other side of it could be like, oh, it's tattling on us or telling... But again, it's like if if safety 
and risk aversion is the focus, not the you're in trouble because you didn't put your harness on. It's like, that's irrelevant. I'm trying to make it so you're in the safest place possible because we don't want you to fall. We don't want you to hurt yourself. Like how it's delivered or been performed could be a big part of it too. Cause then mm-hmm. if your little dinger's going, it's like when you're in the car and you don't put your uh, car seat on or your seatbelt, like it just keeps banging at you and you're like, Oh yeah. my God, fine. You put it on. And then <laughs> it, well, and then yeah. what happens if two blocks later you have a car accident and now you're safe, you know, it's annoying in the moment, but it actually right. saved your life, right. you know? I think it's cool to see there are people that are trying to build solutions that do stuff like that. The issue that you're always going to run into is enforcing and getting people to actually put on the wearables, put on the different pieces of tech to help protect them. I mean, classic example is seatbelt. Um, and, I, and I think that's that's where a system like this can really be beneficial because there's nothing to remember per se by the employees besides like actually doing the, the safety things but you don't have to put on additional equipment, take additional steps to ensure that we're tracking your safety because this is already done with the existing cameras in the building. I think another angle too could be in terms of monetization, you could you could license this kind of software to an insurance company where mm-hmm. if I'm an insurer for a construction job site and I insure you know the workers, the workman's comp, the like, to ensure that everyone's safe on that job site, the condition of me ensuring that piece of property being built is I have to have this right. software installed on mm-hmm. on property so we can avoid any issues. Like that could be another angle too because then you, oh, for sure. you talk about you had no market fit with the rock climbing. Well, now you have every single insurance company in the right. country that does – high risk, um, industries. Like, yeah, you could, yeah. I mean, you could license it and do it a, a SAS model where they pay a monthly fee to give you a hefty mm-hmm. fee. Yeah. Um, that's another angle. We've, uh, talked with different C-suite executives at EMC specifically to kind of get an idea of how they might use software like this. And I think when you see insurance companies starting to take interest in what you're doing, it's always a good sign. Um, and, and like it, the slowest evolving industry in the world. It is. It is. And I think it's cool to see there are companies like EMC that are working on this complete digital transformation where they're trying to update code bases and make things more modern so that they can start implementing tech like what we're building to help improve the whole process with the people that they write for, um, as well as just making the industry safer in general. And I think it's you know an interesting thing to consider is, well, what does this look like as more logistics becomes autonomous. And I think like, again, you know, step off and kind of play the devil's advocate against the company. That's the piece that like building a startup isn't always the sexiest thing in the world. It's not this like, I'm sitting here like, I've had these meetings with these amazing people. Like we're gaining so much traction. Like we are, um, we were on who 13, you know, featured as a company for some of the things that we're doing. And so you'll see those bits of like really positive feedback from people but on the flip side, you just keep running into obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And I'll say, like, building a startup is one of the most exciting, terrifying, and fun things I've ever done in my life. It is also by far one of the most demoralizing things I've ever done in my life. Because you'll have that one conversation with someone where they'll throw some things, you know, one of them mentioning, you know, what are you going to do if all the warehouses become autonomous and now there's only robots to watch? There goes your entire market like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And so your mind starts racing. You're like, well, I could probably solve it this way or maybe these industries. But you, you almost are fighting this battle against yourself where on the one hand, you want to listen to advice like that because you don't want to become delusional. You know, if, if I 
was convinced that the climbing industry would work. And we kept on doing that. I mean, we get to the point where now we have investor money. We have people with salaries we need to pay, but we're not making enough money as a company and we end up collapsing. And now we're letting down the people that we promised the service to. Like it's so much more encompassing than just, I'm going to get super rich with this really cool piece of technology. Um, you have expectations to manage. Yeah. Cause in your, <clears throat> in your mind, how in a perfect world in a vacuum, how would this work? What's, what's the success model for you to take it to market and in the next, you know, six, 12, 24, 48 months, however long it would take to get it off the ground. Yeah. It would be to find a couple of industries that are like, this is exactly what we needed. Let's start implementing it immediately. We build the model, we build the software and then we start having other people saying, oh, we want to do the same thing too. And then that would kind of shake some hands with the insurance companies that then they start distributing it to the people that they write to. That's an ideal scenario. And I, and I think it's completely plausible for us to get there. It's just that we're taking time and doing our due diligence to interview as many people as we can and get as much information as we can before we start even developing a product um, because we don't want to waste our resources I think big picture goal is to work with other AI companies and computer vision companies that are doing something similar in the space and see if, I don't want to necessarily say an aggregator, but really to add cross functionality with these different models. I'm much more of a person, I want to swim in a blue ocean than a red ocean and being able to work even with our direct competitors and function in the Des Moines ecosystem. Like that's just my long-term goal. Um, I do this because I, I love to create and I love the process of building a startup. And I think the money is, is a cool side piece of it. But at the end of the day, I think the more I learn about the ecosystem here, I see these people that they invest money and need to make 10, 20, 30 times because they then take that and invest into the next set of entrepreneurs. And it's the system where honestly, they're all just paying it forward. And I think it'd be really rewarding to be a part of that whether that's to keep building a company and help provide jobs to the people that are looking for that type of work or to take the money that we're making as a company and reinvest that back into the next set of entrepreneurs. Because I think there's a lot of things that have been really difficult for me in this where it's like, man, if I just had these resources, big picture goal, I would love to be that resource for the next set of entrepreneurs and help kind of overcome some of those obstacles. And there's a trial by fire. Like you have to go through the difficulty of it. But at the same time, we need people who are willing to put their money up and say, hey, I believe in what you're building. Here's a half a million dollar check. Run with it. Yeah, I agree. And I think just the, the pay it forward model is interesting. Like I was at an um, entrepreneurship event in Omaha when I was in college. And there was a – trying to think of the name of the company. But they're a basically a SaaS product for the building industry. And they have like 70% market ownership of every major construction site in the country and they're based mm. out of Omaha. That's really cool. And the the CEO is at, at this panel event talking and he was telling like he he comes to all these entrepreneurship things because he's like, I did this when I was in college and no one believed in my idea and now like mm -hmm. I am the imposition where he's looking for ideas he could invest in or he's looking for things that are there. I think that's a really it's a fun thing to kind of be having a finger yeah. on the pulse with. Oh hundred percent. And I and I think for those that believe that a rising tide lifts all the ships, like you're going to do well in the ecosystem because especially in Des Moines, if you try to gatekeep resources, if you try to be that person that is very, I don't know how else to put it, just other than like you aren't sharing resources openly, 
you'll get closed out pretty quick. And I think that's one of the things that I love about just how small the space is because everybody knows everybody. And if you go in there with the wrong intentions and just I'm going to milk this for all the money I can make out of it and just to kind of be a scummy business person, people will know real quick and they won't do business with you. And so I think for like for the good people, the, those are the good people that need to step up. They're going to find a lot of success in this market because sure. there's a lot of really good people here. Sure. So in the interim, while you're trying to build the startup, how are you, how are you living? You're not taking a salary on this, obviously. Like, <laughs> are you living in a cardboard box in the alley? Like what's, how are you surviving right now? Yeah. So it's a mixture of, like I said, been saving like crazy for the past few years. I still am in the military. So I do my monthly drill and then I do marketing consultation on the side. So kind of taking the past nine years of experience in what works, what doesn't work in marketing, working with different individuals and brands to kind of help build their marketing strategies. Uh, one big thing that I had done before switching into this was going in and helping companies build their marketing department. So if they wanted to move it internally, hiring the people, interviewing them, making sure they have all the processes and procedures, and then kind of moving on to the next group of people to help them with that. So a lot of it is, yeah, just continuing to do marketing on the side. Sure. One, well, I'm assuming you have through the GI Bill, you can go back to school for, for free yeah. then. That's, yeah. that's a huge benefit for you as well, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm in school right now working on uh, another bachelor's and master's in machine learning and data science. So kind of the goal with that will be, if I'm running a company that's doing work in this space, I want to understand how these things work rather than just being the guy that kind of the disconnected CEO that's like, uh, you all go do those things and just sounding like a buffoon when I'm talking. So I think the more experience that I have, I realized that helped me be a good leader when it came to marketing because I was able to manage expectations for the, the creatives that I was overseeing. When they told me, oh, I have all the time to do this, you know, I could tell them like, no, you don't. That's going to take a lot longer. Guard and protect your schedule. And so I would help set their schedules and work alongside of them. Because like I said, I knew how long it took to do that type of work. And so being able to utilize that experience I think it'd be beneficial for me to continue my education as well as just being more of a recognized authority on the topic. Um, I, I love data and analytics and I've been coding since I was in high school. So it just, yeah, continued. <laughs> sure. And a as you're kind of building this new career path and everything, obviously you've had experience with creating content, with uh, mm -hmm. things in the military, with, um, you know, doing the rock climbing interests and all the other things with theology. Like how is this kind of cumulative kind of um, ebb and flow of your career, how has that kind of put you in this position now and, and put you in a good position to build this new startup? I'll say for a long time, just being completely transparent, I felt like getting a theology degree was a waste of time. And I really wrestled with that because initially going into a non-religious field, I was like, did I waste five years of my life? Because I started doing seminary as well. And I think it's funny because looking back, who would have thought that learning how to take highly technical details and explain it to people in an applicable and understandable way is exactly what I would be doing in tech, taking highly technical concepts and explaining it in an applicable way. I think it's the one side I've seen it kind of come full circle. The other side is the more research that I've done you know, back 16, 17, 1800s, for a lot of people theology was considered the queen of the science. Like before you could even start to study theology, you first had to master math, science, physics, history, and then you could study theology. And for a lot of these people that contributed to even a lot of our machine learning algorithms today and the foundational side of it, 
a lot of them were ministers or theologians. And for them, they saw theology or rather science was a way to understand the divine. And so regardless of how you interpret that, whether it's nature, you know, regardless of your religious belief system, I think that whole concept is still very applicable that understanding all of these other things is really just a way of understanding the divine, what's what's around us to really understand nature and creation. Um, and that also deeply affects your ethics. I think a large part of it, my beliefs in how we should be handling customer privacy and not profiling and doing the right thing even when no one is watching and ingraining that deeply into how we run as a company is deeply rooted I believe in my spiritual and religious beliefs. And I think the the accountability that I've learned that is held within the religious circles is something that I really want to incorporate within our company that regardless if I'm making a billion dollars, the low-level employee can hold me accountable for making a bad decision. And I think to build a successful organization, you have to ingrain that in because if your people don't feel supported, they're not going to support you. And at the end of the day, I mean, company, successful companies are built on the backs of passionate people that love what they do. And I can't be, I will eventually become disillusioned and separated and just think that, wow, this all happened because I did so much hard work, not realizing that there are people who are actively putting in their time and efforts and resources. And so staying humble in the process of it, I think like you have to have a lot of self-awareness. And I can see a lot of that has come from my religious studies. Um, I, I never thought that it would benefit me in building something in the tech world. Sure. Well, it's interesting to see again, the path because no job's a bad job. Like everything, mm-hmm. every, all the oh, experiences, yeah. Yeah. it all leads to this thing. Um, so I think that's really interesting as well. I know as we wrap up here, um, you mentioned earlier, ask what, what, Ed, so I'm going to give you the stage here. What <laughs> for people that are listening, um, what would you encourage them to do? Whether it's um, to connect to the right people? Who are you looking to connect with to help build this thing? Who are you trying to look to recruit to help build this startup? Like what what can my audience do for you? Yeah. Um, connect with me on LinkedIn and, and, and feel free to reach out and chat. I am more than happy to provide my time and connections and resources to people that also want to build. I, I think the thing that I need from people is support, ideas, um, and if they have connections that can help us grow that would be hugely beneficial because the reality is, and being marketing, I love sales. I hate selling. And I think the cool part about being in a, in this stage as a business is we don't have anything to sell yet. It's just a lot of research and a lot of conversations. And so I need to meet with those people just to hear what problems do you have that we could potentially solve with this type of technology. Um, and I, I just love to meet people and grow my own network. Perfect. Well, Sam, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, we'll make sure we put all the information in the the description box below. So, um, if you've made it this far on the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple iTunes or subscribe if you're listening or watching on YouTube. My name is Ryan Snod. It rhymes a lot and we'll catch you in the next episode. Peace.